Hey everybody, welcome to season two of the Mixmasters podcast. I'm your host, Steve Litcher, and for those not familiar, I'm the touring front of house engineer for Stitched Up Heart. Working with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet an incredible number of really talented people, and I wanted to introduce you to them. I wanted to let you hear their stories and learn from their experiences. This is really your chance to listen in on behind the scenes talk and to learn from some of the best in the business. I have to give a huge shout out to my pal, Merritt Goodwin, for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's also an extremely talented composer. Give him a follow on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin or on Instagram at Merritt Goodwin Official. Now let's bring up the faders and jump into this episode of Mixmasters Podcast. My guest for this episode of Mixmasters is Charlie Bybee. Charlie joined me by way of Miami, Florida, although he normally lives in the Nashville area. Charlie is an uber-talented monitor engineer who works with a number of bands, including Rise Against, Five Seconds of Summer, and Trivium. He also tour manages for Trivium, so it was really fun to chat with Charlie and learn how he's mixing monitors, the tips and tricks that he's using to make sure the artists can hear clearly and that they're happy. And then I also picked his brain a little bit about tour management and some of those responsibilities. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. It was really fun to talk with Charlie. Without any further ado, let's jump in and get to know Charlie Bybee. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Mixmasters podcast. I am joined today by Charlie Bybee, who is uh, joining me by way of Zoom as usual. But Charlie, you're in uh, Florida right now, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm just outside of Miami. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Uh, right now, the weather where I'm at is not being very cooperative or friendly, so Miami sounds absolutely awesome. Truly is an endless summer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so weather talk aside, I wanted to thank you in advance for being on the podcast. I'm super grateful that you were able to join, and I can't wait to learn a little, little bit about you. So um, if you don't mind, we'll just jump right in. Yeah. Cool. Can you take us back a few years and Talk about, you know, when you first got turned on to music and where you sort of uh, got interested in music. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up in uh, Southern California, um, kind of a Riverside County, Inland Empire. Um, so growing up out there, everyone was in a band. There were shows everywhere, backyard shows, tons of venues. Um, so it was kind of hard to uh, grow up without, you know, your week being consumed by shows or friends bands, whether it be backyards, skate parks, venues. Um, So it was always just kind of something to do. Um, So right around, you know, high school when everyone's forming bands, um, you could only fake bass long enough until someone, you know, realized you had no clue what you're doing. So I, um, I kind of spent most of high school just kind of being the, you know, quote unquote, other guy. Um, which kind of led me to, um, hanging out with friends that were getting small recordings setups. Um, and I was always just kind of the other guy in the room, which kind of led me to, you know, recording friends demos and doing stuff like that, which led me to going to clubs with them, learning how to mix them or more (laughs) watching the sound guy of the club mix them and then repeating those steps the next day. Um, so in no way a musician at heart. Um kind of just fell into doing the majority of this stuff because 
I wanted to keep up with my friends as much as possible. Did you end up doing any type of formal education around uh, mixing or music production, or was it all just self-taught and onward and upward? I, I did go to school. Right out of high school, I went to uh, Citrus College uh, in Glendora, California, and I got like a recording vocational certificate. Um, the program was, you know, like most recording schools, um, you know, you got from it what you took from it. Um, but the real, the real cool thing about going to Citrus was since it was a, a public school, they weren't really necessary on your tuition to operate. So there wasn't much uh, fluffing you of you're going to go do this and this. Um, and most of the instructors were, you know, either active musicians or, you know, active engineers themselves. So there was some, uh, there was some sheer honesty <laughs> at that school, which kind of helped, you know, kind of helped you introduce you to the realities of doing this. Um, so, you know, while I can't say college led me to, you know, mixing, you know, platinum records, it definitely led me to, you know, staying after school and working in the shop and learning how to fix things. And, you know, probably the best gift I got out of it, you know, I had a professor that, you know, hired me at the church he played at on weekends. And that got me, you know, an actual paycheck. Uh, even though the work wasn't cool, I was you know, getting 15 bucks now. So at least was able to pay rent and try to push the dream a little bit farther. Uh, were, you, were you primarily just focused on studio recording at school? And then what was the transition like going to the, the church where I'm assuming that was all live production? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the focus for me when I was younger was to move into studios. Um, but since I had friends uh, that were playing in bands right around the time I started going to college was when I had friends, you know, getting into vans and starting to like tour around. So the summer before I went to college, I went on a small, you know, club tour with some friends, um, you know, made pennies and it was the best summer of my life. So, you know, that little small taste as I went into um, recording school, it kind of gave me a glimpse that there is some other stuff besides recording bands. Um, but I did, I did follow it for, you know, a good two to three years. Um, I mean, after recording college, I moved to LA, worked in a few studios here and there, um, started working at a Bill Schnee studio, um, which is state of the art facility you know, dealing with some of the best musicians that could ever live. But it was a state-of-the-art studio in 2007, 2008 in Los Angeles. So not only was I getting, you know, top-of-the-level engineering instruction, I had right in front of me, you know, the state of large-scale studios in 2008, which was pretty, pretty grim. There was months when there was nothing going on. And then maybe a project would come in for a week. Um, so I remember, you know, I, I was on a gentleman's agreement at the studio. So when it was making money, I was making money. But when it wasn't, I wasn't. So I started working at clubs around town just to make rent. And started working at the Viper Room and Club Nokia and working out at the Glass House in Pomona. Um, and while it was nothing glamorous, it was a way to make, you know, 100 bucks, 150 bucks a night, um, and kind of showed me, well, if I want to chase this recording dream, I'm going to have to learn how to do this at night to kind of pay bills. Um, so then as, you know, the studio started going into a slow winter, um, I then had friends that were going on 
bigger tours and by bigger, I mean, instead of playing 200 cap clubs or playing 500 cap clubs. Um, but since they were paying 500 cap clubs, they could afford to pay 500 bucks a week to bring someone to mix. Um, so I did that just for one season, like just a December, January area, just to hopefully pay rent. Um, and after that tour, I went on another tour and went on another tour. Then I kind of just never went back to working in studios. Were you mixing front of house primarily at that point or were you mixing monitors or a little bit of both? At that point, the, everywhere we were playing, I mean, it would be a once in 30 night situation for there to actually be like a monitor console. So those, those tours were um, all just battle front of house, um, which those tours led into tours where I ended up being a front of house TM and, you know, kind of kept reprising my role of uh, the quote unquote other guy. <laughs> yeah. And were you mixing, I'm assuming you were mixing console du jour, whatever the house had on those tours. Yeah. I mean, this was uh, nothing fancy. I mean, this was the age of, uh, you know, mix wizards um, and, you know, maybe the occasional Midas, you know, when we'd get a house of blues. Yeah, it's it's funny how there was like that purgatory period where the transition from all analog to all digital and then you would run into these bizarre combinations and really outdated equipment and all that fun stuff. So I'm sure you did your fair share of battling in those environments. Yeah, I mean, because it was a it was always kind of a you didn't really know what was better because, you know, you'd see all these digital consoles and magazines and then you get on them, but you'd never been on them. So, you know, you're mixing on some house guy's file or you're trying to build something from scratch, but like on a changeover. Whereas, you know, you would, your mix wizard, you'd only have 16 channels, but you knew where everything was on that desk and you could just start dialing it up. Like, you know, how you did the day before and you'd be pretty much there. So, you know, especially being, you know, 22, 23 at the time, it was kind of always debatable, you know, which desk was better, you know, cause at that time, you know, the digital console that you'd run into in these clubs would be a 5D, um, which I know everyone ended up hating, but I kind of always just look at it and love it because it was like my first one. Um, or you would run into the occasional D-show, but like the D-show was like a, you were having to jog up and down the desk to you know, even get a line check in. I, uh, I don't miss those days, although I do have a bit of nostalgia for that because I started on big analog board, well, not big, but analog boards. And so I sort of miss the huge consoles, but I absolutely don't miss them when I'm out yeah. doing things uh, in the real world. So it's just a fond memory. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, those, the, the PM three K's and the five K's, you would just kind of like take a breath before you'd like start a line check. Cause the thing was so gigantic, you know, and like, I, you know, I was, I, I'm, I'm five ten, So I'm like right at the height where you can, you know, reach that top pot, maybe, you know, <laughs> wingspan was definitely an advantage if you had it, uh, back in those days. Yeah. So these days, and I use these days in air quotes because we all are, uh, taking a little break right now, but you're working with some pretty notable acts. How did you make the transition from, did you just keep moving up and up and up in the tour ranks in terms of like size of bands with their popularity or how did you get involved with the likes of Trivium and rise against and five seconds of summer and those guys? Um, yeah, I mean, every band was kind of a different case of how I came to be. I mean, transitioning to larger acts, um, it was a lot of just, you know, touring with people. And then six months later, the opening bands 
you know, going on their first headliner and I'm working for them or, you know, the headliner that I was touring with, you know, their guy got fired or drunk or dead or who knows what. And, you know, now I'm taking the next step up. Um, so it was always kind of a juggling act. So, you know, um, I really haven't been at front of house much since like 2011. I'll do some occasional jobs here and there. Um, around 2012, I had, uh, I was with the ghost inside doing front of house, kind of one of my last major like front of house stints. And we had supported a day to remember all throughout Europe. Um, and at that time, a day to remember was a bigger band. Um, but you know how sometimes bands productions aren't really in no ways in scale with their size. There's tons of big bands that have very amateur productions and there's tons of small bands that have kind of overdone it. So even though they were filling, you know, two, 2,500 cap rooms across Europe, they still had, you know, a personas desk that they were quote unquote mixing themselves, but there was a stage manager, drum tech, all around kind of thing going on. Um, and as you know, tons of nights that just didn't work. Um, and they had a, you know, dysfunctional Pro Tools uh, rig that, you know, always was like one click away from working. Um, so being on that tour, um, I kind of would help out here and there. And then when that tour was over, it was kind of like, ah, oh, we need a monitor guy, um, which I had done a bunch of monitors in club situations, but had never toured as a monitor guy. Um, so 2012 was kind of like a year of first for me. So, you know, first year doing monitor, first year traveling international to all these festivals, a day to remember was breaking like crazy at the time. So they were doing some of the biggest stuff they had ever done. I don't think they knew I was walking into these rooms doing some of this stuff for my first time. Um, and in the midst of that, they actually were doing their first arena tour uh, opening for Rise Against across the US. So that was kind of my first year of what I would consider doing, you know, legitimate professional touring. I'd done two to three years of van and trailer and stuff like that prior, but it was all stuff that you'd walk in and watch and go, I don't know if this is real, even though it totally was. Like, I've learned more in those three years than anything else, but probably 2012 was the first year of like carrying consoles, uh, figuring out how to do advances, walking into festivals, throwing going, you know, 32 input shows, which at that time was a lot. Um, so that was probably the first time of jumping up um, in size. Wow. What, were those, uh, were you using wedge and side fills at that point or in-ear monitors or a little bit of both or what was that like? So it was supposed to be just in-ears like most bands of that time. But as that, you know, they started to have advantage of money and having production advantages where, you know, whatever they say they get, you know, the, the wedges and the side fills and everything kind of crept in, especially, um, you know, going on that arena tour, you know, the band's mind was, you know, we got to do everything louder. So, you know, for the first time in their career, well, not first time, but first time as a legitimate touring band, they're like, let's put cabs back on stage. We need things to be loud. We're touring with Rise Against. There's wedges and side fills everywhere. Let's use them, you know. So it was their first dabble of, well, let's do both, which, you know, as anyone that's, you know, started to do monitors knows, once you throw wedges and ears into the mix together, it really creates a layered job that you got to approach right or it'll be a disaster. Can you talk a little bit about some of that layering and what you sort of discovered 
in the earlier phases of that? Like what were some of the big adjustments you had to make uh, from a mix standpoint? Were you dealing with things like latency or just sort of uh, things standing on top of each other? What, what sort of challenges were you addressing? Um, I mean, it's the hard in-ears are probably one of the best, like revolutionary inventory, invention, uh, revolutionary inventions, uh, for onstage playing, right? Um, it lets you bring the volume down, lets you hear everything, lets you not worry about staying in one spot. But the hard thing is, you know, as it became more affordable for younger bands to do it, you started having a lot of bands that, uh, jumped into in-ears before they jumped into wedges, which hadn't happened in prior generations, you know, before, you know, say 2004, you're typically moving bands from wedges to ears, not vice versa. So the hard thing about adding wedges and side fills back in after you've been on ears, ears, you're, you can break a lot of audio rules and no one will really notice. You can add high end to guitars, you can brighten up vocals, you can do all these things that if you start throwing it in wedges, you, you kind of create some problems. Um, so at least for me, I, I treat them as I'm doing two separate things. I don't, I don't view them as the same thing. So, you know, you got to approach a wedge mix completely different than you would approach an ear mix. Um, and it's really hard to treat either like the opposite because you'll run into problems. So one of the first, for me, the first, you know, humps you have to cross in learning how to manage that is typically one side of it has to, to suffer, right? So if you're mixing the base of your inputs for ears, you're going to have to modify the wedge sin so it works, which typically ends up, you mix your ears completely flat, and then you got to do a bunch of wild output EQ to your wedges so they're not feeding back or they're not rumbling or stuff like that. Um, some, the best compromise for me is, you know, really important things, you end up doubling your channels, specifically with vocals, um, any type of live mics on like percussive instruments, stuff like that. You'll typically end up with a channel version of it for wedges, a channel version of it for ears, which then, you know, you're starting to double your input list as you go on. So as you're mixing and actively doing the show and someone's asking for their vocal up everywhere or, you know, someone's wanting you to do this and that, you really got to stay on top of what's going on um, or you can lose it real fast. You remember, I hate to keep asking console questions, do you, but do you remember what console you were using back uh, when you were running both wedges and, uh, well, active and in-ears together? Um, the majority of the time I was with a day, remember, you were, you were pretty much on Avid profiles almost everywhere. Um, and on occasion, you would run into a lot of 5Ds in either low-budget situations or situations where you're supporting um, a larger act. Because at that time, uh, most more established bands had been on the 5D for so long, they didn't really want to move away from it. Because as, as we all know, anyone that spent a lot of time on the profile, it was amazing to use, but you really, you really had to fight it for the sonic quality where you could get there a little bit faster with the 5D, especially if you had like a big bin or some type of exterior clock to it. I've been lucky, uh, and I say lucky again, in that I haven't had to mix on too many profiles, but it is quite an adjustment, especially in terms of like its output staging. Uh, things tend to be so much more quiet with the, the profile, and you have to push things harder than you might normally think. So 
but anybody who's listening knows that. So I'm sort of talking to the choir, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm sure I'll get a lot of hate for saying this, but I mean, you really, you really have to push the desk into Christmas lights to get it to kind of sound cool. It's, it's one of the few desks where you can really, it, I've seen people ride that thing at zero across the board and it sound good. I've never been able to get it there myself. <laughs> I was talking to, I think it was Brian Hardiswick, and he said the first time he jumped on a profile was at a uh, pretty massive festival here in Wisconsin. And he got on the desk and, you know, the band came out and he could only do a line check and they played their first song. And like the house engineer came over to him and he's like, uh, dude, is everything okay? It's, it's really quiet. And he was hitting like, you know, 75 decibels. <laughs> And then uh, he realized he had to push it pretty hard at that point. And then, you know, magically it came to life and everything sounded good. So, yeah, good old profiles. Yeah, I mean, again, I'll get a lot of hate for saying this, but I mean, every every really good sounding show I've ever seen uh, where the profile's at front of house, if, if you peek over that guy's shoulder, I mean, they're hitting the outputs as hard as they can. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Mix with your ears, not with your eyes. The, you know, like that's that's the common saying, right? So these days you're on an Avid S6L, I believe, primarily. Yeah, I, so I have a bad habit. I, I switch consoles a lot. <laughs> um, and I, I, I get some flack for it, but I, um, I really do enjoy switching it up as much as I can just to kind of stay as up-to-date as I can from console to console. It's, it's real it's really easy to get comfortable and then four years goes by and you're like, man, I have no clue how to do this on anything else. Um, so I jump, I jump around a lot. Um, I, I would say the SXL is one of my favorite things right now. Um, but I have spent a lot of the last two, two and a half years, um, mixing between SD 12s and SD 10s. Um, and I've really, really grown to really like that, that environment a lot. So for the most part, it, I'm either on an Avid or a Digico. Um, but you know, if this was two years ago, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary to see me, uh, on a pro two. Um, and you know, with Trivium, we've been carrying the D lives a, a decent amount. So, I mean, I, I've, I've been jumping around a decent bit. I'm a huge D live guy. I, I love it. It's, it's by far my favorite platform. So I, I lit up when you said D live and Listeners are probably groaning because I always geek out and fanboy <laughs> over it, but I, I love the desk. I can't help it. No, it, it's uh, what they've what they've created for a price point is uh, is very cool, um, and it's 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 cool for bands on a limited budget as well uh, because you have a lot lot of access to features that you haven't had prior. Um, so it, it it's it's a cool it's a cool universe. Yeah, totally agree. Let's, uh, this is, I think, a great point to transition a little bit and talk more technical side of things. First, I'd like to know, are you doing anything with Waves uh, servers uh, in the monitor world? Or are you keeping everything inside of the console? What are you doing in terms of uh, processing? Um, so <laughs> I, will, I will start every tour with a Wave server and try my damnedest to not use it. Um, and it it works out maybe 10% of the time that I don't use waves. Um, it's, it's such a rabbit hole 
It's uh, you can get lost so easy. Um, but there are so many wonderful waves plugins that make your life so much easier. Do you have any sort of go-to plugins that you like to use, like say for your lead vocal or, or something like that, that you, you absolutely find yourself needing to use on a regular basis? Yeah. I mean, most, most of these answers will be pretty stock, but I mean the, I, in the last two or three years, I don't think I've had a vocal that doesn't have an F6 and a PSE on it. Um, they're just, they're really quick hand grabs. Um, and you can get results really fast using those. Um, and then, uh, I've, I've been preaching the NS one in monitor world for years. It's just, um, the NS one has, is just a perfect noise plugin for every buzz, um, crackle it, you know, especially doing ears. It's, it's really important to get things as quiet as possible. And all those small noises can be such distractions and tedious troubleshooting to try and remove a noise that you could remove very easily with just a plugin. Not that you should let noises creep around because you have a plugin, but sometimes there's just no time to troubleshoot it. And the other thing about noises and crackles, they're so day to day specific and, you know, time specific too. I mean, you can have a complete quiet line check and now all of a sudden front of house talkbacks buzzing, the video lines buzzing, all these things that aren't worth the time to fix just having that plugin available for, I would say at least half of the gigs I do, I have the wave server for no other reason than the NS1. Yeah. And not to go on a tangent, although I like it when we do that on the pods, but are you finding uh, like video walls and things like that cause more noise? Like those are more recent additions, I, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, not, not necessarily video walls in general. I mean, I find most of the noise in the few situations I've gotten from actual video walls, it's brought the overall noise floor up so much that now everything sounds this way. So let's just move on. Um, I'm the more, the more issues I have with video is it's in so many different places. And depending on where the media server is, anytime videos sending you audio, you have such a high margin of error from, you know, all the connections that take point that take place to how the content was created more often than not, you're getting really low quality audio from those systems. So given all the points it would take to troubleshoot, to try and get that signal clean, it's just easier to throw an NS one on and move on with the day. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you, are, do you have to deal with any sort of latency adjustments dealing with like video versus live inputs or are you managing any sort of latency with your plugins? That was a topic that we did as a roundtable, so it's fresh on my mind, and I'm always uh, interested in managing latency. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really sure if latency issues have become more common lately, or we just never really noticed them five or six years ago. Um, so, I it takes up at least thirty minutes of new rehearsals for me and parts of my day checking latency from, you know, even stuff as simple as, you know, checking the latency from Tom triggers to the actual mic, um, checking latency from guitar DIs to mics. Um, it, it's gotten a lot easier to check that stuff out and it really tightens up your mix to stay on top of that stuff. Um, and also, you know, especially in the in pop world, 
and stuff like that, it's become so much more common to have all these layers of drum triggers and key filters to keyboards and all these things that create even more latency, auto-tune lines, the whole nine. Um, you really have to stay on top of that stuff or you'll lose a mix in a second. Yeah, we, uh, I should have, I wish I would have met you earlier because I would have loved to have had you on that round table. We were, we spent a good hour, hour and 20 minutes talking about latency and, you know, I was playing the role of devil's advocate asking if it really matters because we didn't worry about it to your point five or six years ago and we had a pretty interesting discussion so maybe we'll do a part two and i will uh try to grab you into that discussion if you don't mind yeah i mean i i, I forget i was doing some i was doing some iheart event like in december and at some point some c6s had shown up in a vocal chain during a line check. And I don't know if it was always there and I just, in a quick like group enable of plugins, I turned it on. It's definitely something I wasn't using on the tour at all. But I mean, I chased this vocal latency for at least two or three minutes trying to figure out what was going on with my channel. Is there something wrong with the server? Until I was like, I never had a C6 on this. And I was thinking to myself, it's like back in the profile day, I mean, I was throwing C6s on everything. You know what I mean? I was throwing them on vocals. I was throwing them on guitars. I was throwing them on mix buses. And, you know, now that I'm able to, you know, to have a multi-rack and you can figure out latency as easy as just right clicking and, you know, seeing, you know, how many samples of delay it was adding. I was like, you could never use this plugin on a vocal live, at least in monitors. Um, and I was, I was like, I never struggled with this on the profile. And I couldn't really figure out if it really wasn't an issue on the pro profile or if I just never heard it until now. <laughs> but I, the, the latency issue is, is uh, it's something, the, the more you start to hear it, it really, it really starts to, latency picks my plugin paths more than anything now. And I find myself, you know, shedding pieces of gear or multiple inputs just to achieve, you know, a zero is more important to me than, you know, blending things. You know, I'd rather it sound tight and fat than have to do a bunch of delaying um, to get it to sound cool with whatever plugin I'm wanting to use. Yeah, that's, I totally agree. I, I haven't mixed many monitors, although I do monitors from front of house for stitched apart, but they're their monitors are so simple. Uh, I really don't do much other than just set, you know, get my input staging and gain structure uh, correct, and then they run it off from their iPads. I wanted to continue down the technical path here a little bit, but you also mentioned rehearsals, and I'd like to talk about that in just a little bit. But can we continue sort of from a generic standpoint with your rig? Yeah. Are you, when you're running waves, are you using redundant servers, uh, redundant control systems, or have you been lucky that? like a standalone has worked out well for you? So uh, I, in, in actual show situations, I have yet to deal with a situation where a server going down has actually lost me my waves. I find the majority of my errors are typically happening with, you know, network switches and other, other areas of the chain than the actual server. Um, I carry a redundant server probably 90% of the time. There's a, few, there's a few gigs I do with vendors with limited inventory where I just carry one server. Um, and on that gig, I, I choose plugins a little bit more wisely because of that. Um, 
I just, especially being at monitors, I, I can't really afford for anything to sonically change at all. Um, so I would say the majority of the time I'm always going out with a redundant server. I toured with a waves rig last fall for the first time and it was a standalone and it seemed like I approached it like you did where I, I didn't want to use it, but I ended up going down the rabbit hole and the couple of times that I absolutely needed to use it, it always seemed to crash right before the show. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd be, you know, pulling my hair out while the intro music is playing and then I would finally just abandon it, you know, and do the show without it. So I'm always curious about how people handle redundancy and, uh, you know, taking care of things there. For in-ears, uh, for like Trivium, are you on the Sure uh, PSM 1000 system, I believe? Yes. For tri- oh, uh, Trivium's bounced uh, back and forth the last four or five years between 2050 systems and about like PSM 1000s. Um, it, it's all dependent. I'm, I'm pretty sure they're going to stay on the Sure systems moving forward, um, but they've kind of always bounced back and forth. Gotcha. Are you having to do the wireless coordination for that as well, or do you guys have a, a Wi-Fi, a wireless tech? Um, for Trivium, it's it's just me, um, and probably, you know, the majority of the gigs I'm doing, I'm doing coordination myself, um, or you know, if the band I'm with is supporting, typically, you know, I'll work with either the vendors, RF person, um, or just their engineer themselves. But the majority of the time, I'm coordinating myself. Yeah, that was uh, another eye-opening experience for me uh, doing the the RF coordination and being surprised by cities that I would have thought wouldn't have RF challenges. I think we were in Cleveland or Cincinnati. I can't remember. It was somewhere in Ohio. And it was worse. It was harder to try and find clean frequencies there than it was in like Chicago. And it's it's baffling. Yeah, it uh, it'll surprise you sometimes. So <laughs> you'll, you know, you'll dread the you'll dread the San Diego's and Dallas and uh, the Austin's and then you'll get to those shows and you'll kind of sneak by no problem. And then, you know, all of a sudden you'll be in Indianapolis and you'll just kind of like be like, what am I struggling with here? This is nuts. (laughs) Yeah. We did one show near an airport and that was unbelievably challenging. And I, I guess that there was a lot of, you know, between the, the traffic control and all of the comms that they must use around the airport or whatever. But Man, it was uh, not fun. That that was a stressful day. <laughs> <laughs> We've hit a, a fork in the road here, and I'd like to get your input. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about rehearsals and your interaction with a band. Is there a band that you'd like to focus on for this next little leg? Um, not necessarily. I mean, any any of your questions, whatever band seems to answer them best, I'll just go down that road. <laughs> okay. I'll ask, I'll ask the questions gen- generically and you can apply the the situation as appropriate. Perfect. So, so when you're going into pre-production and you're doing rehearsal, what are some of the early things that you're focused on? And then let's work our way from, you know, big broad strokes to more targeted tactile, tactile type of uh, solutions and things that you're working on. So first day of pre-production, what are you doing? Are you Actually, let's back up a step. Are you um, designing the monitor rig or with the bands you work with that's already pretty much predefined so you know what you're going to use equipment-wise? For the majority of the artists I work with, um, it's pretty much, you know, my say on equipment. Um, So I'm pretty hands-on from the beginning, you know, building the rigs, working with the vendors to make sure things are prepped like um, as I would prefer it. 
typically staying on top of that stuff will kind of aid to, you know, easier first days. Um, I've been working with five seconds of summer. I've been working with five seconds of summer for the past year. And with that pop world, your gears kind of already determined for you. And this has been the rig and this is what all the engineers done. And those type of bands management has a little bit more logistical control of your show. So those shows you're typically just kind of walking into what it already is. Um, but the majority of the time I'm kind of designing the rigs myself. Are you, when you're designing those rigs, is there anything that you sort of change from act to act? If it's somebody that you've worked with in the past, like, you know, Trivium versus Rise Against, like, you know, are they drastically different in what they need and want and how you, and are you designing accordingly? Um, I wouldn't really say the rigs changed. I, I wouldn't really say the rigs changed much from band to band. They would probably change more from tour to tour and what, what the tour is, you know? So say, say for example, a, a band like five seconds of summer, right? I would want that rig packaged in a way that pieces could be pulled away and used independently. So, you know, a pop band like five seconds of summer, I really want that RF package packaged completely separate from the control side of it. Um, so for one-offs, small acoustic shows, uh, TV shows where I'm using all other gear, I can pull the RF rig out and not have to worry about breaking apart the rest of the rig. Um, and if I'm dealing with a band that's, you know, going to be doing a lot of club underplays um, and stuff like that, I'll want the rig built in a way that it's in smaller pieces that can easily go up and down stairs, get in tight corners. If I'm doing a big, long summer shed run or festival run, I want that stuff packaged as big as possible so it can be as few pieces as it needs to be, um, just so it can get in and out really quick. Um, same thing, you know, if I'm going into an arena run, I want stuff so it can go under the stage. And so it's in the, the almost the exact size cases. So that truck pack is fast and easy and there's no put this here, put that there. Um, so I would say I build rigs, uh, more for what they're going on than what the band is. Oh, that's really, that's interesting. I never would have approached it from that side, but it makes complete sense. And your comment about the bigger shows like the arenas and, and whatnot. I always used to sort of joke with guests that run really big shows and they would talk, they would say something like, Oh, we use this little 18 U rack for this. And I'm like 18 U little, but you know, at that scale, it all makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll give some comparisons, right? So, um, five seconds of summer pop band, uh, I'm touring with a stage tech. Uh, I'm not, dealing with front of house at all. I don't really care how anything's packaged except what I'm touching on my console. Pack it however you want. There's someone else loading that stuff. I don't care. Rise Against, uh, if we're going and doing a European tour, it's just me. There's no tech. And we're playing giant arenas. And then we're playing clubs in Scandinavia. Um, and I got a tour with full wedges, side fills, the whole nine. So on something like that, I'm doing C stacks and M4s because they're things I can lift. And in a truck, I can put them eight feet high and take up the least amount of space. If, you know, I'm doing, trying to think, if I'm doing uh, distillers, right? 
I don't really care how hard it takes me to pack that trailer. I got M2s blaring for Brody and I don't care how much gear I got to bring out as long as I can get it as loud as possible to get through the night. Um, so it, it, it really varies from, you know, what the show is versus what the show's not. Yeah. Again, that's, that's super insightful and it, it's a side of, of the touring world that I'm totally unfamiliar with. So if these are really elementary questions, apologies in advance, but I, it's absolutely fascinating. No, no, no. I was going to ask what, uh, what type of uh, wedges and side fills are you using with rise against? Like if you're on a European run, uh, you mentioned M2s, uh, but then what, what is uh, rise against using typically? Rise against typically is a, is a full DMB stage. Um, so either it, it depends if, if I'm teching it, it's in fours because I, I can carry two myself and not break my back. Um, we'll typically do, uh, you know, C stacks for side fills again, because I'm building it and I don't want to, you know, roll a bunch of large stuff in. Um, yeah, I, I can't really, that's pretty much their whole stage. It's just a bunch of M fours all over the place and C stacks for, uh, side fills. Yeah. Cool. Uh, okay. So let's, we're, I'm ping-ponging around. Sorry about that. But uh, so you're through the initial design phase of pre-production, and now you're in your first day of rehearsals. What are you really trying to focus on and work with to make sure that everything goes as smoothly as possible? Are you working directly with the artist? Are you working with somebody from management, like a, a music producer, or how are you interacting uh, typically? Um, most of the time... For rehearsals, I, I'm not really dealing too much with management by the time we get to that point. It's on the front end, it'll be heavy me involved with the backline techs. Um, and then as much as I can, once the band walks in, um, I'm pretty much just talking directly to them uh, unless it's an act that really prefers to talk through their tech. Um, in in the case of some pop acts, you're, you're really dealing heavily with that MD and the playback tech pretty much exclusively. You're just dealing with those people. Um, but for the majority of the time, whoever's, you know, running the show, that's who I'm talking to for the bulk of rehearsals. All right. And then it advances a little bit more. So rehearsals are going on. What, t what are the typical adjustments that you're being asked to make, uh, you know, like for let's just pick on the lead singer here. So what, what do you typically find? Are they wanting adjustments to like effects or EQ or their general mix or all of the above? Um, so that it, it all depends on how much rehearsal time you have. So, you know, I, in a typical year, I'm not working with too many new artists, you know, in a typical year I'm doing, let's say maybe, five tours at most, probably a handful of one-offs. Um, and in those bits, you know, I would say maybe 20% of the time I'm working with someone I've never worked with. So for that 80% of the time with bands that I've been with, hopefully I'm being asked back because I, I figured it out the last time. So I'm just on autopilot, do exactly what I did last time and let's adjust forward. In those times when I'm working with someone new, um, that's that's part of the game every person is different so those you know those first few hours when you're with a new artist you're playing the game of being as polite as possible as you can um, asking as many questions as you can to their comfort level 
And then while they're performing, you're trying to gauge, okay, is this person being honest with me? Uh, are they angry? Uh, how should I approach them if they're angry? If they're not saying a word, uh, how should I proceed further? Uh, and, and it's funny too, because in, in my opinion, I will take diva yelling and screaming about the dumbest things any day because that person's saying what's on their mind, right? Um, the, the person that you really, you know, you'd put at the top of your list of like, man, this is going to be a struggle. Anyone that's giving you a, yeah, it's fine. Or, um, the, it, it's good for now. Those people, you know, that's where, that's where the job starts. Cause you know, your, your goal, the next three or four days is to find out, are they actually happy? Um, or are they just uncomfortable? Cause it's going to come out. Uh, I'd rather them be uncomfortable in rehearsals and let's get through it. than you get that, you know, second or third song in and they're finally being honest that this sounds like shit, <laughs> you know? So I, there's not really a, I would say there's like 10 or 11 different profiles of per, like people. Um, but no one's the same. And there's not like a, a typical way I work, um, with everyone the same. And the other thing too, is you have, you have bands that, that, that take themselves serious at different levels. You know, you have a lot of rehearsals that are just full on like jokes and let's eat a bunch of food and let's do some drugs and we're just jamming. And then, you know, you have people that this is my life's work and we better get ready for the show. And I'm on 11 the whole time. Um, so it's part of the ride of, you know, what am like, what relationship am I in store for, you know, right now? have you run into artists that can't articulate what it is that they want in their mix? And I only ask because last summer I did a really small, like eight show regional run. And one of the bands, the art, the lead singer uh, was like the person who said, it's fine for now. You know, it's okay. And then, you know, three or four shows in, he blew a gasket because the monitors weren't good. And the, the engineer was asking him, well, what's wrong? And he said, I don't even know what to tell you. Like, I don't know how to explain what's wrong. Have you run into those type of scenarios? Oh, yeah, all the time. And it's, you know, it, it's not really that person's fault at all either. Because you got, you got 10 different kinds of musicians, you know. You got audiophiles that, you know, music and playing is their life and they love making records. And then you got dudes that have just been along for the whole ride. And, you know, they love traveling and, you know, looking at the artwork and partying and they're just there for a good time, which is fine. You need those people as well too. Um, so, you, you know, one of the hardest things is sometimes get younger people to think about, especially when you're doing larger rehearsals, you know, you got, you got bands that, you know, sometimes shortchange themselves on rehearsals for everything. So, you know, you view it as three days of rehearsals and you're walking up to them and you're thinking audios on their mind every second. Sometimes they're thinking, holy shit, we just paid a half million for this thing that does this and it's not working and should we even have done this? And I don't even know if like what I'm going to wear for the show and holy shit, we're losing so much money on this tour. And, you know, I got a girlfriend that wants to fly out in two days and they got a hundred things on their mind. And sorry, like the way their guitar sounds, they could give two fucks. You know what I mean? Um, so I, it's those difficult artists, there's, there's always a reason for it being difficult. Um, and you just kind of got to 
ride the awkwardness till you find a comfortable spot for both of you. It's not really about it sounding good or it being right. It's, are you comfortable? Are you having fun? And that's all that really matters, regardless of what it sounds like. It's so true. Yeah. You're, you're part psychologist, part counselor, part audio engineer, you know, and you're, you're running that balance between all of those roles. Yeah. And I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta be careful too, because there's, there's no rule that says people need to know what it sounds like, you know, that dude that's just there to hang out and doesn't really care much about audio. He's just as much a part of the band as the nerd that wrote all the songs. Um, and he's just as important to the business as that guy as well, too. And even if that guy can't speak music language or can't say a thing about audio, it's still important that while he's up there or she, they're happy. You know what I, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, what's the old saying? Happy wife, happy, happy life. It's like happy artist, happy tour. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's advance our, our progression here a little bit more. And now you're out on tour and you're with, let's just pick on Trivium. Um, can you take us through a day in the life uh, at a venue? So bus pulls in, trucks are pulled in. How does your day begin and, and take us through the day? Yeah. I mean, it all depends on what I'm doing. So, I mean, on, on Trivium, I'm production managing and tour managing um, and monitors and audio kind of takes the back seat on that gig. So it's, it's more something I do just to get through the show. Um, and I'm in that camp, I'm pretty much a production manager all day. Um, so it, it really depends on the size and the scale. Um, the last tour we did was a European, uh, festival run. Um, so on those runs, um, I'm typical, typically up anytime between seven and 9 a.m. Um, and it'll start with either checking the band in or, you know, most of the time I have a, a very decent bus driver that'll kind of handle the credentials and stuff like that themselves. Um, so it's kind of seeing what he's grabbed. Is it missing anything from the advance? Um, and then I'll kind of start a walk to find out where major things are, find artist relations, find dressing rooms, kind of drop my bag and begin to, you know, Trivium works mainly on a lot of just group text for information like that, as opposed to signage and stuff. So typically once I figure out where the important things are um, and where we're going to be kind of parking for the day, I'll kind of start a big text of internet info. Here's how you get to the bathroom. Here's how you get to me. Um, and then from there um, I'll head to the stage um, typically within 30 minutes of being on site meet stage manager, make sure he's met my truck driver, um, and kind of talk between the two of them on, you know, when they're going to actually be loading us in. And from then, um, I'll move on to meeting, you know, key personnel around the stage, typically some type of representative from the video team, lighting team, audio team, start to kind of discuss how our gear is going to integrate with theirs, depending on how much we're carrying. Um, and then normally around that time, um, I'll start having, you know, members of the crew showing up, give them info on what the day looks like from this to this and that. Um, hopefully on that run, I'll have a stage manager who I can give a whole spiel to of, you know, what the day is looking like. And normally around that time, I peace out. Um, so by that point, I'm somewhere near a dressing room compound, um, setting up some type of office so I can kind of be around for when the band starts trickling in. Um, and then just depending on where we're at in the set, uh, if we're later in the day, um, I'll kind of stay local to that dressing room, 
um, work on the next few days, work on getting schedules ready. Uh, if we're earlier in the day, that stuff will kind of just be abandoned until the end of the night. I'll head back to stage, start. Thankfully on Trivium, um, I have a very active front of house guy that's happy to do setup work. <laughs> um, so in that gig, most of that gear gets set up for me and I just kind of show up once it's in place. I'll do some RF, um, kind of check to make sure everything looks right, game plan how I'm going to get stuff on and off, and then I'll kind of hang out until the band shows up. I'll do a load off once they're done, and then I kind of abandon gear and hope the crew figures it out. Um, and then once the band walks off stage, my life's pretty much them for the next two hours, whether it's getting them to food, getting them to press, um, getting them back on the bus. Um, and from times I'll have to jump back to the stage if there's any type of loading dilemmas, stuff like that. Um, if it's a headliner, I'll jump into settlement world and that whole nine. Um, and then normally round out the day, you know, hopefully two to three hours after the band comes off stage. So I don't know if I'm rambling here, if there's more to that, but that's what a normal day with Trivium looks like. I think that was a fantastic snapshot and perfect. So I appreciate that. Uh, I'm infamous for leaving gear behind at places. Is there uh what's the craziest piece of gear you've uh, left behind and had to replace while on tour? I can think of two scenarios. So with Trivium, it's, it's always these MMA mats that they use for working out. They don't go in a case. Um, there's no, like they just go in black bags. They're very easy to leave. They're not my responsibility at all. So normally it's just my responsibility to figure out how to get them back. Um, so most of the times I don't really have to worry too much with myself losing gear. It's normally other people losing gear. Um, I think the funniest one, uh, I've, I still to this day work a lot with every time I die and they're, I mean, they're van and trailer heroes. Um, so I'll normally always find some way to jump back in with them at least once a year. So a long time ago, they built this giant light up eye, um, that they used as a set piece. And I, I mean, this was maybe 2013. Um, and I did a pickup tour with them maybe about a year ago. They were doing like a week of shows. Um, and that eye came back out on tour and it was like, man, this thing's raised from the dead. So we do a show where it doesn't fit in super low stage. Um, it gets back in the trailer, but it's got these two metal T's that it sits on for legs. Um, and, uh, going from St. Louis to Kansas city. Um, and probably about an hour from getting to the venue, it dawns in my head, man, I wonder if anyone remembered to grab those legs. We pulled off to get gas. And I opened the trailer, didn't see that they were in there. It's like, man, there's no way this light's going to work without these legs. Um, and shout out to Dave Garcia at DSS. I literally texted him. Uh, they have a shop outside of Kansas city. Hey man, do you got a welder in, in your shop? He's like, yeah, man, what do you need? I was like, is there any way you can get me two just tees? I just need tees. Uh, just whatever venue we're playing in Lawrence. I think it was like the Granada. Can you get these to the Granada in like three hours? Uh, yeah, sure, man. Like 200 bucks. <laughs> I was like, done. Like band didn't even know about it. That was like the last like mistake I think I made. Yeah, that's crazy because it's not like you can stop at Guitar Center and pick up a couple of eyeball tees, you know, while you're out. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm uh, I'm cracking up because uh, yeah, I appreciate that story more than anybody will probably know. 
Uh, so we're nearing up on an hour here. I wanted to ask one uh, quick final question. When you're mixing uh, monitors, what are you using for ears and near fields, generally speaking? I, I'm one of the few people you meet. I don't really have a preference on wedges, really. Um, it all kind of depends band to band. Um, so, I mean, my Q wedge is just going to be whatever is out on stage, whether it's a M2, CM22, wedge de jure. Um, for ears, I, I actually, it, I have no problem with the 2050 series. I, I think the Sennheiser ears sound great. Um, so typically I let that decision of Sennheiser versus Shure ears be flushed out, um, by whatever the band's done prior or whatever a vendor has inventory of. Um, so I really have no preference on that. Plus, you know, Workbench is amazing just for what it is, so I can use it with any gear, really. You'll find a lot of guys that are just, it has to be sure, and I understand why. It works so easy. Um, but I find myself on 1000s more than anything else, but I, I, I love both series myself. Do you have a preferred vendor for your in-ear monitors, like your actual buds? It's really hard to not use JH. It's, it's pretty much all you end up using. Um, so I, I probably own three pairs of JHs and two pairs of Ultimate Ears. Um, and I have found both companies have treated me great. Um, so I, I wouldn't be in any spot to tell people to use one over the other. They're both great products um, and fantastic people at both companies. Yeah, I, I would echo that sentiment. Um, so my final question is sort of an off-the-wall question. Did you ever have a plan B? Like if you hadn't jumped into the touring world and kept moving up, did you uh, ever think you'd be doing something different? Or what would you like to do if you weren't touring? I've never really had time to figure out a plan B. I mean, obviously with our current times, I wish I would have thought about it at some point. Um, but I, you know, I think about this a lot. I... I don't know what else I would be doing um, considering this is all I've done pretty much since I've been a teenager. I don't really know anything else. Um, so I've always figured if I were to stop touring, I would probably still do some work in some type of production logistics. And, you know, it, I think we're what, seven, eight months into, you know, COVID now. And, you know, there's tons of people hustling and doing everything doing other things respect to them um i've through all this i've kind of learned i'm i'm probably going to be a, a you know a coal miner in this situation i'm just i'm just gonna go i'm gonna go down with the ship because i i got no other skills and i got no real desire to do anything else and if if touring looks smaller than what it's been i got i got no beef with going back into a you know bus and trailer and going back into clubs and I'm all for it. So I've, I've never really considered doing anything else. I know I probably should. <laughs> I just, it hasn't hit me yet. I keep telling my girlfriend that my plan B, if, if this never comes back, which God forbid that that happens is I'm just going to end up working at a convenience store, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> selling sodas and cigarettes to kids and, you know, just call it a life <laughs> at that point. <laughs> yeah. All right. 
Charlie, uh, super phenomenal. I really appreciate your time today. This was so enlightening and so informative, and I really appreciate all of the information that you shared. Uh, hopefully, I can get you back on for some uh, roundtable discussions. We can get hooked up with Brian Campbell, uh, who I met you through. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, have some fun uh, tour trading uh, discussions and all that good stuff. But No, no, that'd be great. Yeah, and I'm, I apologize for not listening to your show previously. I'll probably, I got, um, I'm driving home to Nashville uh, this weekend. So I, it's on my docket to, you know, fill the, you know, 13 hour drive. I, you, did you, you recently did a show with Bruce Ryder, right? Yeah, Bruce was phenomenal. Uh, I met him through Brian as well. So I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I owe Brian uh, so many drinks. It's not even funny. He probably will have to enter some sort of rehabilitation program after I pay him back for, yeah, I, I, I think I have that one sitting because that, that one's been out already. Or did Bruce just, yeah, I, I, that one's kind of sitting at the top of my list to check out. I've, I've toured with Bruce a bunch. He's a full on Zen guy, totally different from anyone else. I definitely plan to check that one out. <laughs> yeah, he, he came across as so Zen, uh, even through <laughs> Zoom. I was like, I can't imagine touring with him. Like I would probably, you know, my blood pressure would drop 35 points, I'm sure. <laughs> He's, he's a fun one, man. I've, I've been lucky enough to do, I think, two full tours with him and then a bunch of festivals where we crisscross. And it's, it's, he's, a, he's, a very, he's a very fun individual to be around. <laughs> so. Yeah. Thank you so much for being a guest. I hope to cross paths with you out on the road once we're back at it. And uh, I'll take any tips or tricks you might have for improving my monitor mix for Stitched Up Heart. So, Thank you again for being a guest, and I, I really look forward to talking to you again in the, in the very near future. Awesome. I appreciate it, Steve. It's been fun. And that's a wrap on this episode of Mix Masters. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please be sure to subscribe and then tell a friend, or maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd certainly appreciate it. I produce Mix Masters on the Allen & Heath DLive system with Shure microphones and a little help from Apple's Logic Pro X and some Waves SoundGrid plugins. One more round of thanks to Merritt Goodwin for the music, and until next time, stay safe and healthy, and thanks again for listening.